I'm Robin Birkin and welcome to the Fertility Warriors podcast, a place for women struggling to conceive to find emotional support, conception advice and real talk. To me, being a warrior means true glory is in rising every time we fall, having the courage to be afraid and being ready for whatever challenges cross our path. So welcome warrior, you're on your way. I promise to support and guide you on every single episode. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fertility Warriors. I am joined today by one of my most favouritest people on Instagram. We have spent quite some time scheduling this in. I am so grateful. You know, I've got to say, I'm actually really grateful to all of the guests who come on the podcast because not a lot of them are from Australia. And usually it's either like super late where they are or it's super late where I am. So always really appreciate my guests. And today I am bringing to you Sasha McHale, who is a board certified OBGYN and a fertility fellow at Augusta University. You've got like one year left, I think, but I am really excited to welcome you here today and for us to just jam all about IUI. So welcome to the podcast, Sasha. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. For me, it is particularly helpful to have an RE who has themselves gone through the process of freezing eggs and things like that. So you have gone on your journey and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, probably for, you know, not the same reasons as everyone else, but you also have what I would say is lean PCOS. Uh, Yes, I definitely have PCOS. So let's talk about that as well. But what I wanted to really talk about today, and you've all seen the title of this podcast, it's Is IUI a Waste of Time? But something that I see within my community a lot now is people doing cycle after cycle after cycle, not a lot changes. That's what we're going to talk about today. So I think what we'll do before we chat about that is let's just chat about the basics of IUI. So IUI stands for intrauterine insemination, but can you explain to me, I guess, a little bit about what actually happens in an IUI cycle? Well, I'm actually very happy that you started with that because I I probably would have done the same thing. I'm sure that there are some women who are new to the infertility community and especially when they go to see their doctor for the first time, they get thrown all this information. It gets very confusing. And I often do get friends calling me once they've had their first visit saying, oh my God, what the heck was that? And so, okay, starting with an IUI. Typically speaking, depending on the indication for your insemination, most of the time we will pair that with ovulation induction. And so we like to manipulate the cycle where we might give a medication, not always, may not. Um, And then we bring you in around a few days before you ovulate, usually cycle day 11 or 12 to do an ultrasound, make sure there's a dominant follicle, and then um, ensure that you actually are ovulating. If you have an LH surge on your own, then the insemination will occur the next day. If you need a trigger shot, which is a medication called HCG, which helps to release the egg from the follicle, 
um, then your insemination would be about 36 hours later. During the process of the IUI, once that, it's, once that is scheduled, then if you're using your partner's sperm, he has to go to the lab, give his sample, and depending on how good the sperm is, there's different methods that are used in the lab to wash it. Basically, the goal is to remove any dead sperm from the really great swimmers, and so it's not unusual to have the concentration or the total number of sperm of that IUI sample being lower. Um, it's just because it's mostly the high quality sperm. And then once that sample is ready, you go in the stirrups, the speculum goes in the vagina, and then essentially a catheter is placed through the cervix into the uterus, and the sperm sample is very slowly pushed in over a duration of five to 10 seconds. After that, you lay on the bed for usually 10 minutes, and then you just go on your merry way and do the two-week wake. Two-week wait, sorry. So when we're talking about ovulation and, you know, how the body works and things like that, women, you know, that we say they're born with all of the eggs they're ever going to have, and then every month, one, is it just one, uh, I guess, follicle becomes dominant, and that's then released uh, into the fallopian tubes and then the egg comes out of the follicle and then usually like the sperm will be like hey girl how you doing and then like they'll get together <laughs> and then so that's kind of the process so what kind of things is an IUI I guess sidestepping like what kind of issues would an IUI sidestep to help improve a woman's chances of conceiving so something that uh I would assume a lot of people don't know this. Um, at the cervix, during the time that you were ovulating, um, there's a lot of cervical mucus. And that mucus actually makes it a lot tougher for the sperm to penetrate. And so, you know, say for example, a man has, in that particular sample, has 100 million sperm. Well, in the cervical mucus, there are these pores that are actually smaller than the sperm head. And the sperm has to actively push through, push through, push through. And so only an average of about 200 sperm will actually make it into the uterus. I and never because, knew that. Yeah. 200. So, oh, wow. Yeah. I think the highest reported that I've seen was a thousand. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and our textbook that we normally study from says anywhere between that range, 200 to 1,000 will make it to the uterus. And the millions left, they die in the vagina because the vagina is very acidic. And so it just kills them off. But then the sperm can take anywhere between five minutes to an hour to make its way to the fallopian tube, which is normally where the egg and sperm meet. And there's all these chemical signals that are released from both that help them to meet each other until eventually the sperm actually has to actively penetrate the shell of the egg to make its way in. And as soon as one sperm makes its way in, there's something called the acrosomal reaction where it basically makes it impermeable to any other sperm. Isn't this just such a complex thing that our bodies so complex, have? Yeah. I never knew that only 200 sperm 
get through. Can you have more hostile type cervical mucus versus more friendly <laughs> cervical mucus? Well, you you could you could even have like anti-sperm antibodies. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and back in the day, this doesn't really exist anymore, but there used to be something called a postcoital test where they used um, to test for that. Oh. So essentially you would have sex and immediately get your, your mucus sampled. And How you- awkward. <laughs> oh, I mean, I just can't even imagine that. I'm like, so wait, are they having sex in the office? Because I, I can't even imagine. Keep it down, honey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, that, that doesn't even happen anymore because ultimately there wasn't any difference. It was unreliable. And then with insemination, you're bypassing the cervix altogether. And so you're going from just having about 200 sperm make it through to that entire, like, multiple millions of sperm that are highly modal in a nourishing medium that is being injected into the uterus. So that definitely helps. The other thing that it helps with is there are some women who have either because of endometriosis or previous surgeries to the cervix, there can be some scarring in the cervical canal that makes it really hard for the sperm to penetrate that. And so, um, and, and you can also tell when you're doing the IUI, it can be trickier and a lot more difficult to put that catheter through when most of the time it's very easy. And so the IUI can really help to bypass any cervical pathology. I already know the answer to this question, but I would like to ask in case there is any doubt. After an IUI or even after, you know, like IVF transfer, can stuff fall out the cervix? It always makes me laugh a little bit because I I understand why women truly feel like that. But I always say, you know, most fertile couples, they have sex and get up right away, go about their business, maybe even go to the gym right after and they get pregnant. I mean, it's not coming out. And especially after an IUI, when you're laying down for 10 minutes, um, I mean, most of the sperm is probably already in the tube and has met the egg at that point. So you getting up and going about your day isn't going to change anything. And then um, same with the embryo transfer, the embryo is not just going to unstick. It's not going to fall out. And in fact, studies have shown that if you get up and walk right away, the success is actually higher. Yeah. So, yeah. When we are doing things like IUI, what I know... So, and I feel like I need to address first, though, that clinics have different criteria for how they do their success rates, and it's it's really up to us as the clients to really have a look at how they base that criteria. Some people will cut out people who are of advanced maternal age. Some people actively even just turning away a lot of people that they don't think are ideal clients. But at a general level, what is the success rate of IUI? So IUI, generally speaking, um, in combination with ovulation induction, has an average of about anywhere between 5 to 10%, mm-hmm. depending on what study you look at. So it's actually, uh, it's, it's fairly low. Um, if you look at a fertile couple, the chance of them getting pregnant in one month is 20%. And I always tell patients, it doesn't stay 20%, otherwise everyone would get pregnant in five months. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that chance does go down each month. Um, but for couples who are having any difficulty conceiving, whatever the diagnosis may be, typically for them, it can range anywhere between 3% to 10%. And that's with a combination of ovulation induction with IUI. If you do each separately alone, the success is much lower. It's about two to three percent. Mm. Um, and then, if you compare that to, for example, uh, women in same-sex couples and mm. they use donor sperm, their success rate is between ten to thirty percent. So it's oh. much higher. Okay, and is that because they aren't necessarily undergoing this process because they have fertility issues? Is that, would would that be right? Yeah, that's probably the case because for one, you're using a sperm donor who are selected for their good sperm. And then, you know, so you already don't have male factor infertility. And then if, you know, most of the time, um, I mean, I wouldn't say most of the time, it's, it's pretty equivalent to the general population where, lesbian women will have the same rate of infertility as any other woman. And so the majority of them do not have infertility. They just need the donor sperm. And so the success rate will be higher. I think it breaks my heart when women go into IUI cycles without knowing the full statistics of what the success rates are. It breaks my heart even more when insurance companies insist on people doing six or more IUI cycles. Uh, we, oh it's God. a bit different in Australia because we like yeah, our public health insurance. So it all it's, it actually works so differently. And I feel like the UK is a bit of a meld of both. That in Australia we have our Medicare system, and mm-hmm. basically it's just that different treatments are subsidised by different amounts. So the government essentially just pays half and I, but there are now public IVF clinics. But the problem is that often I hear that the waiting time for an IVF cycle, for example, is 18 months. Personally, I would not want to wait 18 months. So you can understand that there would be a lot of people particularly relevant because we're having this conversation on the 5th of June who are not as privileged as me, who might not be able to afford to pay seven, $8,000. It breaks my heart because I, don't, I think that out of many different things, you don't want to wait too long. I don't right. know what your thoughts are, but there is so much talk about advanced maternal age. No one can deny that the chances of conceiving go down. However, I think that with a combination of lifestyle factors, I, I think that there is much more hope for women of advanced maternal age but I still don't think we want to be like I'll just give it another year kind of thing (laughs) no no and especially once you start hitting a certain age every year can make a really big difference which you know I think for especially for older women when COVID happened Mm -hmm. and um the American Society of Reproductive Medicine released their statement about suspending treatment it caused absolute chaos for mm. advanced maternal age women who said, you know, you know, time is precious for me. I need to have my treatment. And so I definitely agree with that because the number one prognostic factor for success is age. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that's essentially what even pushed me to go ahead and go through IVF myself and freeze embryos with my fiance. It was that you know, I, I knew better and I'm also fortunate enough to be Canadian. 
And mm-hmm. so um, I actually had it covered. Yeah. And so yeah. in Canada, it's, it's very different from the U.S. where it, everything is covered except for your meds. And so mm-hmm. that makes it, it's still very expensive, but it's much more affordable than in the U.S., Mm. The cost of meds in the US blows my mind. They insist that you have private health insurance here in Australia. They won't treat people who just have public health insurance who are going to pay out of pocket for um, anesthesia and things like that. So there's that cost that is covered. Then you pay maybe like $7,000 and then the government will cover the other portion of that through public health insurance. But our medications are a lot cheaper. I did not pay I don't think $5,000 for one protocol. It's crazy. It's yeah, it's, it's significantly more expensive even in the U S compared to Canada. And I'm not sure why, because we're neighboring countries. Absolutely. And so coming back then to IUI and Mm -hmm. women, let's say that it's not an insurance thing. So I feel like your hands are a little bit tied when it's an insurance thing. However, I think it's up to you to start campaigning to your workplace and your insurance company if that's the case and tell them that that's BS. Absolutely. Put insurance aside, where do you sit on how many IUI cycles is enough IUI cycles before taking this up a notch? So before I delve into the numbers and the stats and the studies, I want to preface it by I I actually think about this all the time Every time I sit with a patient and we go through the options, I think in my head, uh, at least I used to, I've kind of shifted what I would do, but um, I used to think in my head, you know, if I was in that exact situation, what would I pick? You know, how, how many times would I do this before enough is enough? And so that's why I really like this topic because... Um, a lot of people are often are unsure of what to do, especially when the choice is given to them. And mm. I see different doctors counseling very differently. Mm. And so I just want to give the data as objectively as possible. Um, and so I'll start by saying back in 2010, there was this huge clinical trial that kind of helped shape how the majority of REs will discuss treatment options with patients in terms of ovulation induction versus, or sorry, IUI versus IVF. Um, This was called the FAST trial. And so they did it in Massachusetts because in Massachusetts, um, insurance is actually required to cover fertility treatments. So it's much easier to do it in a place like that where insurance is mandated. And what they did is they had three different groups Um, or sorry, two different groups. The first group, um, essentially, they had do ovulation induction with Clomid and IUI for three cycles. If that didn't work, they moved on to using FSH, so your injectables, with IUI for three cycles. If that didn't work, then they moved on to IVF for up to six cycles. Yeah, (laughs) overwhelming, right? Um, And then the other group that they compared to was doing Clomid with IUI for three cycles. And if that didn't work, they moved on immediately to IVF. Right. And so, and what they found was that um, there was actually a significantly quicker time to pregnancy. And it was 
I mean, statistically, significantly speaking, it was eight months versus 11 months. Mm -hmm. And um, the cost was much cheaper if you went straight to IVF. Wow. And it was almost $10,000 cheaper, Mm. which is a massive amount of money. But this is cost-wise. So it's not what the patients paid because insurance helped Mm. cover that. Um, So... After that trial, there have been a number of other studies looking to see, you know, um, is three the magic number? Because a lot of clinics would offer three cycles of IUI. If that didn't work, you move on to IVF, depending on your diagnosis. Now, there are certain things where you don't even want to consider IUI. So, for example, if your tubes are blocked, I mean, it's, there's no other option but IVF because the sperm and egg will never meet, obviously. But there's other situations like if you have low egg reserve, mm-hmm. um, it, you might want to lean more towards IVF. Or um, if, the, if male sperm is less than 5 million concentration, mm-hmm. insemination is very unlikely to work. Definitely under 1 million, it's, it's not going to work. Um, so those are situations where... IUI shouldn't really even be part of the conversation, and I would hope their doctor is just kind of moving on from there. But in most other cases, especially in a case like you have unexplained infertility, probably one of the most frustrating diagnoses because I always get people saying, well, you didn't even, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. And I say, no, no, there, there is something wrong. We just don't know what it is. Our preliminary lab values and imaging cannot show us what's going on. And sometimes IVF is actually diagnostic and therapeutic. So we, you know, we see that, okay, the egg quality just does not look good. Or, you know, the egg fertilizes, but then fragments the following day and the days to come. And then there's no embryos to transfer. And so that tells us a lot. Or if you have a bunch of eggs and none of them fertilized, you know, there's a fertilization issue somewhere. So that's, that's one situation where you're like, okay, how many IUIs do I really want to do before I move on to IVF? And um, it's a bit of a personal question. There was a study in 2014, so four years after that, and that was done in the Netherlands, where they compared um, couples that did Uh, IUI three times versus couples that just did an IVF cycle with a single embryo transfer. Mm -hmm. And um, in that particular study, it was cheaper to do the IUIs with not much of a difference in pregnancy rate. Um, It was 25% for IVF and 21% for IUI, but that study had a lot of flaws. And then on top of that, they even admit and said, if our IVF pregnancy rates were even comparable to the U.S., then it would most likely be leaning towards just moving straight to IVF rather than doing IUI. So in the U.S., on average, the success rates, obviously it varies by so many things like Mm -hmm. your age, your diagnosis, clinically what's happening, what clinic are you going to, the lab, the embryologist, the technology, but on average, country-wise, it's about 45 to 50% success rate. So it is pretty high, and it's much higher if you're going to do um, genetic testing on the embryos. Um, there was another study. <laughs> I know there's a lot of Tell studies. Tell us what, you know, we want to know. Yeah. 
<laughs> but um, this one was actually interesting because, I mean, they looked specifically at unexplained infertility. Um, and mind you, these were older women between 38 and 42 years of age. Mm -hmm. And in that case, they compared just doing two IUI cycles versus straight to IVF. Um, with the IUI cycles, they, they broke it down into using Clomid versus using FSH, so your injectable medication. And if I remember correctly, the IUI with Clomid was close to 22%. Mm -hmm. FSH with IUI was 17%. It was actually lower. And then the IVF was 50%. So the time to pregnancy was much, much shorter. Um, and in this case, they didn't do a cost analysis, but when you're thinking IVS versus IUI, there's a number of things to consider. So with, with IUI, yeah, it's less invasive. It's a lot easier. It, it's a lot cheaper if you're just talking about one cycle. But the yeah. thing about it is that it, it depends, you know, it, for example, at our clinic here at the Medical College of Georgia, it's about $400 for your ultrasound for monitoring. And then there's a $500 lab fee for washing the sperm and then a $500 fee to do the actual IUI with the doctor. It adds up to almost $1,500 per cycle. And so if it doesn't work the three cycles in a row, for a 10% chance of conceiving at most, you're talking $4,500 that you could have put towards your IVF for a almost 50% more or less success rate. And with IVF, yeah, the downside is it is a lot more invasive. Mm -hmm. It's more time consuming. You re it requires a lot of doctor's visits almost every other day for a while. But you actually get to plan your family for the future, because if you have leftover embryos, you can have multiple children from one cycle. If, especially if your egg reserve is low, if you're older, if your partner's sperm is not so great, then it allows you to plan for the future and procreate for the future. And on um, the time to pregnancy is shorter and in some instances, it can actually be more cost effective. Mm. The one thing that I really love that you said is that IVF can also be diagnostic because I think certainly in our case, to some degree, that was the case. And I think that the protocol that I had was actually a fairly common protocol as well. I did two ovulation inductions, two IUIs, and then I moved on to IVF. When we did that, we discovered we had, maybe I retrieved something like 12 eggs and only three fertilized. And so for us, that indicated that there was like an issue. So we moved on to ICSI after that. But yeah, it was like it was definitely a diagnostic procedure. But I am also quite grateful to my specialist because he just kept, he, kept changing things up like he kept okay we're not gonna yeah. like just sit around and just keep doing this we're gonna keep moving through and you know right. trying new things you and your partner are currently living in separate states, states. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 
Yeah. Um, we have a lot of people here in Western Australia. Mining is a big thing. So a lot of people whose partners will work, you know, like four weeks on, two weeks off. That's really hard to time that with ovulation. Oh, yeah. then if you've got fertility issues on top of that, that makes it just even harder. Mm-hmm. But you've made the decision that, do you know what? This might not happen on its own. Yeah. That would be really tricky to be like, I think I'm ovulating tomorrow. Could you just come back right now? He's a physician too. So yeah. Oh yeah. And he like, works in the ER. So his schedule is a lot more unpredictable days, nights. It's all over the place. Talk to me about like mentally the hurdle of saying, okay, I like, we're going to need to look at having some medical intervention for our family building. Well, honestly, I, it, started a little bit before I even met him to be honest mm-hmm. because I was already 30 um before we met and I thought oh my god I'm still single mm-hmm. like this is terrible <laughs> um you know it, it takes a while to meet the person and get engaged get married and then decide to have children so you know I kind of did the math and thought it's not happening before 33 at best and you know, I, I would hope to have more than one child. And although that's still young, I know the stats, I know that it becomes more difficult. So I, I started playing with the idea of freezing my eggs, but then I totally chickened out, okay. um, which is really funny given this is what I do for a living. And so, I mean, I, I mean, who chickens out from freezing their eggs? I, I did. And then I think I just really wanted to believe that I would meet the, my partner and it would just happen. And luckily it did, but then I matched into fellowship in Georgia and had to move. And now we're separated by distance. And honestly, I think what helped me the most mentally was, I guess I'm in a u- unique position where doing it for patient after patient after patient, I started to kind of get desensitized. Mm -hmm. And I almost for a while thought of IVF as, oh, this is no big deal. You just inject some meds. Like, I don't even know what everyone's freaking out about. And then I started the process (laughs) and I had a completely newfound respect. I mean, I always Mm -hmm. did, but I just felt like I can relate to my patients so much more because all of a sudden, even though I had PCOS, I've always been on birth control pills and have treated it that way. Um, but then all of a sudden I started thinking, okay, I have a great lifestyle, but um, you know, what if this doesn't work? What if I put in this time and money and um, you know, I, I don't get a good result and I have to do it again and I don't want to do it again. So then um, I started kind of, you know, leading up to my cycle, getting a little bit anxious. And then during my actual IVF cycle, I mean, I, I drove my fiance probably just absolutely nuts. Anything he did or ate, I would freak out. Don't touch alcohol. Don't eat this. <laughs> you need to sleep well. Go to bed at 10 p.m. And you know he's just like, oh my god, leave me alone. I'm not the issue here. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I mean, I'm getting a little sidetracked, but I don't know. I think I just I was exposed to it so much, and I didn't think it was as big of a deal. And so, and it's just from doing it so much, and I looked at it as a very scientific treatment sort of thing. Um, but then going through it was a totally different process, but now being on the other side of it, 
I couldn't be happier that I did it because there, there's just so much comfort in knowing that, okay, I have frozen embryos and I, I, I survived that, you know, it, I had a decent outcome. It wasn't the outcome that I expected. Um, very typical PCOS. I had 50 follicles oh. and of, the, <laughs> of the 50, they got 20 eggs of the 20, seven were mature. Uh, so yeah. it's just like yeah. that massive upside yeah. down pyramid where it mm. just, the numbers just go down. And I and think that's whatever those stats are, it's almost always a disappointment. Yeah. And, and, it, and I always used to tell patients, you know, just don't worry about the numbers. And, and it's very true because there are women who will have a massive number of follicles mm -hmm. and not that many eggs and women who don't have that many follicles and they have the same number of eggs. It kind mm -hmm. of evens out most of the time, I feel. And so how many fertilized? I have to ask these questions. Yeah. Six out of seven fertilized and they made it to day five. Thank God. Oh, that now that's impressive. That deserves a clap. Yeah, that that, that yeah. was the good part of the stats. <laughs> yes. Uh, I guess I'll bring it back to IUI in a moment, but I feel like more and more Aries are talking about this, but you are one of the people who is quite vocal about also having a healthy lifestyle. Yes. And if I had, and I have many wishes for the fertility industry across the world, but one wish that I do have is that either fertility clinics had people like nutritionists and mindfulness yeah. experts in the clinics or had, you know, like recommendations and things like that. But I, I, I truly feel like we cannot deny the role that a healthy lifestyle can also play alongside conventional assisted reproductive technology mm -hmm. to improve success rates and outcomes. And you are one of the people who... I guess, mentions that. So are you able to tell me, I guess, a little bit about how you maintain a healthy lifestyle and what you believe is important for optimizing our chances of success with either IUI or IVF? Um, I think it's both a combination of nutrition and exercise, as well as sleep meditation. Mm -hmm. So um like any sort of relaxation technique can be incredibly beneficial. Um, I think that we all live very stressful lifestyles in general. The demands of life just only keep getting more and more. And, um, you know, that is, it's very well known that drives up your cortisol. That's inflammatory. Inflammation can negatively impact fertility um, and even impact your um hypothalamic pituitary so basically the access between your ovary and your brain and all those signals kind of go out of whack causing hormonal imbalances so that is very important sleep 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 i can't stress mm -hmm. enough how much good sleep is important but then the other side of that too is having a well-balanced diet and when i say well-balanced i mean i'm always gonna vouch for a plant-based diet no matter what um, there's enough evidence to show that it's just so beneficial for your overall health, but also for fertility. There's clinical trials to even back it up. Um, but I, I say well-balanced because I see so many um, under the hashtag TTC. I see a lot of, oh yeah, go keto, go this, go that. 
you know, take out this entire macronutrient so that you can get pregnant without a doctor. And I'm like, oh my God, that couldn't be further from the truth. And, you know, you just, infertility and trying to conceive is not the time to start experimenting with your nutrition to completely eliminate a macronutrient. Um, If your doctor is saying to lose weight, you just need a caloric deficit of some sort. And so counting your calories and choosing to eliminate a little bit of each group, mostly carbs or um, fat can help, but just completely taking out carbs, completely taking out fat from your, from your diet is just not healthy. Um, and then when it comes to exercise, I'm a very, very big proponent of weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that a lot of women don't realize is that number one, when you lift weights, you are not going to bulk up. You're not going to look manly. I weigh 125 pounds. I'm five foot five. And I am currently deadlifting 200 pounds at three sets of eight. So it, it doesn't make you manly, but what it does do is it helps to build lean muscle. And the more lean muscle you build, um, the lower your insulin resistance. And so because obesity and PCOS are very, very prevalent problems and is a common diagnosis for a lot of infertility patients, weight training can actually substantially help that and then also lower that inflammatory process. So when you're counselling clients, do you talk about all of the other, like the, I guess the other stuff that they can be doing themselves in terms of lifestyle? Do you talk about that? I actually talk about it so much that my attendings will leave the room and they just move on to whatever they want to do. <laughs> and they, I've actually kind of established it in our clinic and it was my quality improvement project mm-hmm. where I made these handouts that I give to every patient and I go through it with them about specifics of nutrition, like how to figure out how many calories you're supposed to eat in a day. And I, and I tell them, you know, I, I don't expect you to count all your calories. Not everyone is that detail oriented and it's hard to live that lifestyle. But if you just do it for a few days, then it actually helps you with mindful eating to have a better conceptualization of how much calories a certain dish would be and how much you're allowed to eat of, of what. Um, and then I also like to give like specific workouts, almost like a prescription. If we come back to IUIs, obviously varies for many patients, but what typically is like a common protocol that you would have where you are? So it's a bit of a loaded question because at this point in fellowship, I just have to follow the protocol that's in place for the university. Um, And that would be three IUI cycles followed by IVF. That being said, um, in my own practice, my plan is to just have um, a discussion and I think it should be a shared decision. Mm-hmm. So I want my patient to, to say, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll try one IUI and then move to IVF. I just want them to feel like it's completely up to them. Here's the information. Here are the pros and cons. What do you want to do? What feels right for you? Because on one hand, if you're, if you're a younger patient and you get pregnant off of an IUI cycle, I mean, that's amazing because you saved a lot of money. 
you're still young, so you can still have kids in the future, um, hopefully without much difficulty. And you didn't really have to go through much. I mean, IVF is still a lot. I don't want to underplay it just because, you know, it's a common treatment and so many of us have gone through it, but it does, it can have its complications. Like I had almost severe OHSS, ovarian stimulation syndrome. I, I was supposed to be hospitalized. I refused hospitalization. It was an ordeal. And um, I felt sick for a very long time. And that's not a situation you necessarily want to be in. That being said, overall, it is fairly safe, but it's, it's a complex decision. And it's something that I think is a decision that should be made between the couple and the physician. And it should never be kind of a dictatorship of, okay, you're going to do three cycles of IUI, and then we're going to move on to IVF. I think that's really... Yeah, sorry. I, I mean, it's like what you said before. I've seen patients who have come back for more and more and more, and then it's their ninth cycle. And I, I tell them, I'm like, what? why? You're wasting so much money and time here. It's been a year. You're not pregnant yet. It's time to move on. But I think that's really helpful to know that some clinics will have protocols. I think that's really helpful for people to know that they they have protocols. They are looking at the results. They will obviously mm-hmm. assess what they think. They're obviously looking at the research, but that it does it can vary between clinics uh, as to what they recommend. So. One last thing that I do want to talk about, because I want this to be a really, I guess, comprehensive chat on the pros and cons of IUI. And I guess as part of that, it is the pros and cons of IVF. One thing that I didn't really feel was brought to my attention as much as it should have, full disclosure, I probably wouldn't have changed anything, was the increase in incidents in things such as placenta previa, accreta, increta, mm-hmm. and I guess pregnancy complications as a result of IVF. Are you able to talk to me about any differences in terms of later outcomes but in terms of IUI versus IVF? Um, long-term outcomes we haven't really seen yet. There are certain things that you'll see, for example, when you do IVF um, with ICSI, they'll say things like there's an increased risk of imprinting disorders. Um, But that's with a caveat. I mean, it's specifically in the case of severe male factor infertility. Mm -hmm. When you do ICSI, there is an increased risk of certain congenital disorders that include um, things like neurologic and developmental delays, um, keeping in mind that, yeah, it's double the rate, but the rate is already, I think it's like one in 5,000 to Mm. two in 5,000. So the rates are relatively much higher, but in actuality, still very, very low. Um, There are increased risks of pregnancy complications with IVF, that's for sure. Um, but I think that we're seeing for a lot of things, a decrease in that because of the lower rate of multiple births Mm. now. And, um, one thing that is now more different between IVF and IUI is that with IVF, because most of us want to only transfer one embryo, 
we are better able to control for the chance of twins and triplets mm. compared to IUI because IUI is typically associated with ovulation induction. You might have three follicles, release two eggs, end up with twins more likely than with a single embryo transfer. So, I mean, ultimately the risk, the, the long-term risk for children, I mean, I haven't really seen anything reported that's all that significant. Um, there, I mean, there was one study that recently came out about childhood cancers, but um, it, there were a lot of flaws in the study mm-hmm. and the actual increase in risk is still very, very, very small. And so um, a lot of these studies, they will look at something called a relative risk where it's that number like out of 5,000, if you have one or even out of a thousand, one in a thousand versus two in a thousand, you're going to say it's double the risk. And everyone says, oh my God, it's double the risk. I don't know. I don't want to deal with that. But in actuality, the actual rate of it happening is extremely low. So overall, IVF is really safe. Um, There have been over a million babies born from IVF and um, very, very few reports of anything long-term with any of these people. That is awesome. I feel like we've given a really good overview of this topic. So before we get into the speed round, are you able to share with us where people can find you, where they can go to follow you and things like that? Yes. So you can find me on Instagram at Sasha Mikkel, MD. It's S-A-S-H-A-M-I-K-H-A-E-L-M-D. Um, and I'm really quick to message most of the time on Instagram. So you can always reach, reach me there. Um, and on a side note, because I'm so passionate about nutrition and weightlifting, especially in the fertility realm, I'm actually currently working on a website to explain all of that in detail. And so as soon as it's launched, I will put it on my IG and I'll let you know too. Oh, and that is so exciting. And my hope is that there will be more and more uh, of that kind of stuff. I, you know, I can't underestimate how valuable I think it is to women who are undergoing treatment. So that is very exciting. And we'll make sure we share that uh, on all of our socials and things like that as well. So speed round time. So I've got three questions for you. Okay. First question is, what is a book that you recommend everyone reads? Okay, this is by my friend, Dr. Laura Shaheen, another REI. She wrote a book called Not Broken, and it's about how to get through miscarriage. Hmm, awesome. Uh, do you have a favorite affirmation or quote? Uh, consistency is key. Oh, I like it. And if you had sort of one message, so it can be, you know, just like a general message. It can be something that you want to like shake people and tell them what would that be? Um, well, I mean, you inspired me to, to share this, but I really, really, really feel strongly about everyone taking their nutrition and their exercise very seriously. Even a small change can make a big difference. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I truly, truly appreciate you. Um, oh, it's been so fun chatting. I'm glad we finally got to do it. Awesome. Thank you so much and have a great day, everyone. We'll catch you at the next episode. Whoa, Nellie, don't go anywhere just yet. I need to tell you about a few more things before you go. The first one is that if you haven't signed up to my Ultimate Fertility Library, then you're missing out. It's free. I have a library of resources just for you. 
and you can get access at robinburkin.com slash library. There are cheat sheets, ebooks, meditations, affirmations, and so much more, and it's all free. Head to robinburkin.com slash library to get access today. And lastly, warrior, I'm not a doctor or a dietitian or a financial advisor. I'm me. And this information is for information and inspirational purposes only based on my own experiences. So please don't substitute the information in this podcast for professional healthcare, financial or other advice. Always consult your own professionals first. And know that in the world of trying to conceive, there are no guaranteed pregnancy or other outcomes. If you'd like to know more about my terms and conditions, head to my website at robinburkin.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next week.